0: Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Anne Wand. On today's show, we'll be talking with Dr. Alia Amir of Sodaton University and Uppsala University, PhD candidate Amir Masumian of SOAS, and Dr. Manali Kumar of the National University of Singapore. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for having us over. It's a pleasure. Thanks, um- Today we'll be discussing a much heated debate on diversity or the possible lack thereof in Western academia. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you are having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Manali, would you like to start? Sure.
1: Um, I'm in New Delhi right now, so it's a bit late for coffee. I'm sticking with water. Okay. And. Um, I finished my PhD in political science recently from the National University of Singapore. Um, I grew up in India and I have spent most of my life um, studying in the West, in the US, in the UK, uh, spent some time in Switzerland recently. So I'm just looking
0: forward to sharing my experiences today. Fantastic. And Amir, yourself?
2: Um, so... I recently purchased an espresso machine and I've been going very caffeinated with that. Um, So I'm having coffee at the moment. Um, I study Brexit in the UK, it's implications, people who voted for it, why they voted for it. And um, as you guys may know, yesterday, um, the UK technically said, goodbye. (laughs) and um, yeah, all my education would be in the UK as well.
0: Fantastic. And last but not least, Alia, please tell us about yourself.
3: Hi, Anne, thank you for inviting us all and giving us this opportunity to chat with you. Um, I'm currently in Stockholm, which is the capital of Sweden, often called Venice of the North as well. And I just had a carrot juice, not something that I'm really fond of, Um, but I just had it. And I did my PhD from Shopping University, which is quite close to Stockholm, in the year 2014, and I've been teaching in Sweden since 2009. Um, I was born in Pakistan, but I grew up in Saudi Arabia, but I've lived in Turkey, and for the last 10, 11 years, I've been living in Sweden.
0: That's and,
3: yeah, that's about it.
0: That is, that's excellent. Uh, What I thought I'd do, since this is a rather sensitive topic for all the right reasons, and it can be quite personal, I think it would be useful for listeners to briefly hear about each of your experiences individually when it comes to dealing with diversity in academia, especially in the Western context. Amir, would you like to start?
2: Sure. Um, So my high school experience was in London, um, where diversity is the norm. You're, it's very rare to go to a state school in London where it's homogenous. And yet diversity wasn't spoken of at all. Like the term diversity rarely ever came up. As soon as I entered academia, particularly anthropology, it was the opposite. So it was very little diversity, but it was spoken of all the time. And um, it, the kind of lingo that people were talking about was very social sciencey, And I had no idea what people were talking about even though it was technically about kind of diversity and the experiences that I had growing up but luckily I had a supervisor who was from a very similar background and i kind of find the space to share these kinds of anxieties about feeling alienated from the lingo and the general concept and I felt like because of the fact that he could relate there was this kind of horizontal relationship rather than a top-down approach which um Yeah, which I'm really hoping will happen more in academia.
0: Best of luck with that. Uh,
2: Thanks. (laughs) Uh,
0: Manali, could you uh, tell us about your experience? Sure. So, um, you know, I spent
1: I've had all my education from my bachelors to my um, my Ph.D. in places other than my country of origin, which is India. Uh, And so I think it's just been very different experiences with diversity in very different academic spaces in the different countries where I've been. And so, you know, uh, the US was very interesting when I did my undergrad in Washington, D.C. And that was, you know, a great experience for me personally because I got a chance to meet so many people from so many different countries as part of that experience. And it was the same in, in the UK when I was doing my master's. And I think part of it might be because I've studied international relations and that typically attracts a very, very diverse student body as well. Um, And so, you know, the diversity in the Western context and then doing my PhD in Singapore, which is also, you know, a multi-ethnic society. And so diversity in these contexts can also be a little bit different but for me, you know, personally, these have been extremely rewarding learning experiences. They've left me personally enriched. And so I am, I've am i only had positive experiences with diversity.
0: I think that that is um, really good. And that's one of the reasons I, I kind of wanted to have all three of you. And don't worry, Alia, we'll get to you next, is that it seems that all three of you are going to have your own personal experiences. And with that, there is going to be, dare I say, a diverse range of opinions and perspectives, and I think that that also will hopefully contribute to the conversation. Um, But Alia, could you tell us about your experience dealing with diversity in academia, particularly in Sweden?
3: Uh, Yeah, so as far as diversity in academia is concerned, uh, Sweden, and not just Sweden, but uh, Scandinavian countries as well, other Scandinavian countries like Denmark, uh, Norway, Finland as well, since I've been presenting my work uh, in conferences, workshops, and I did a few PhD courses as well there. Uh, As a linguist, I haven't met many people from uh, non-Caucasian backgrounds in the Scandinavian countries. I know there are many uh, people from other uh, other backgrounds like Asian and African backgrounds in the UK, for instance. But in Scandinavia, uh, there's still... Uh, They're still less than UK. They're more, for instance, in Norway and Denmark than Sweden as well. Uh, When I did my uh, PhD from uh, Linköping, which is a much smaller uh, city than Stockholm, uh, then I believe I was the first woman who was non-European in our department who did a PhD. So it was both a learning uh, moment for me as well as for our department, uh, when I did my PhD. There are many uh, women and men from uh, in the technical field and the natural sciences, but I believe there are less in social sciences and linguistics. Um, and that's uh, one thing, but div- diversity in academia to me is also the books we read, uh, the theoretical perspectives that we take, the methodologies, the philosophies, which is, I think, very um, Anglo or Eurocentric, the things that we study in the social sciences. Mm. Um, so that's my one of my concerns as well, not just having people from diverse backgrounds, uh, because that of course helps in developing the ideas and co-constructing a better world, for sure. Um, but the books that we read are very limited to uh, European contexts. Mm.
0: Well, and I think that ties in quite well with the next thing. And again, directed to Alia, but feel free to jump in um, because, Alia, you state mm-hmm. that diversity means different things to in different mm-hmm. people. How do you think diversity is expressed in a Western academic context? And you've already talked about, you know, the literature being a concern for obvious reasons and this idea of um, mm-hmm. sort of the European model being the top model and then everything else is sort of secondary or tertiary. Um, Could you kind of add to that in any way?
3: Yeah, so as I said, diversity uh, does really mean different things to different people. And since I've, I've been working in departments or have had education where the studies were mostly focused on European studies, and I did not have a single person from, let's say, um, Chinese philosophy or uh, Indian philosophy or African philosophy. And we were studying sociolinguistics and we were studying linguistics and we had a German philosopher, German linguist, French, uh, maybe and but Swedish and uh, so many others as well. So that kind of limits to our understandings. And then we don't actually have a Solid understanding of the diverse worldview. Mm. And also, uh, including uh, the fact that uh, diversity in academia in the European context is uh, a different thing. But also, if you think about South Asian context and Mm. uh, Middle Eastern context or African context as well, the models that we have in Pakistan, India, or uh, other Middle Eastern countries, they're also exactly the same as what we're talking about right now, the European models. So if I were to obviously study something uh, related to linguistics or philosophy, then the philosophers or linguists would again be the same. So it's not about geographical uh, being uh, in, a, in a different context that the things will change. So it's the same model uh, that others are following as well.
0: Interesting. Um- and it
3: probably needs a revolution, I guess, of some sort.
0: Uh, Manali, you're nodding so your I head. Can, yeah, feel free to add it. Yeah, jump in. I I really relate with that, you know,
1: because one of the reasons why I um opted to pursue my PhD in in Singapore was, you know, I thought, well, I've I've seen how Washington DC looks at the world and I've seen how London looks at the world. It would be interesting to look, you know, to get a sense of the Asian perspective. And it shouldn't have been surprising when you know that when the entire phd program trained us in the western canon right there was there was absolutely no engagement with non western perspectives in political science and so we see that you know even when concerns and issues local issues are being studied in places outside the west they're being studied through the theories and the concepts that have been developed in the West by, even if they're non-Western scholars, they've been trained in these Western traditions. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the diversity of ideas is, you know, we don't really have that. If it exists, it exists in the fringes. I mean, you don't see these ideas printed in any of the main journals um, that, you know, that we take seriously when it comes for publications and impact
0: factors.
1: And these things, you know, filter it down, you'll read articles that use German words and French words. And, you know, half the times I have no idea what they mean. And
0: I don't know what they mean. So like, you're these, not alone. These, yeah. And
1: they leave them untranslated, right? And I wonder, like, what if I just threw a little, like, Urdu something or a little Hindi something? I think you should. Like, will that even make it past. The- <laughs> Um, so I think, yeah, there is, you know, there is um, a lack of diversity in how we talk about diversity mm. within academia,
0: especially. Mm. Amir, any thoughts?
2: Um, yeah, it sounds very exciting to be able to put in Urdu, Arabic words within the kind of um, academic canon. I think, you know, that is the kind of way to kind of expand that way of thinking you know because mm. a lot of the words a lot of they can be translated like there are words for um being interdisciplinary from across the board or like um you know forms of power discourse you know there are other variations of the way of saying things but if it's kind of modulously european then it's no that that reflects that particular mindset
0: well, and I'll be honest, yeah. if I hear the word milieu one more time, I might strangle something. <laughs> so personal opinion. Uh, Manali, one thing you mentioned is that there seems to be higher barriers to integration for non-Western academics who work in the West um, since they need to break preconceived cultural expectations with their Western colleagues. You know, we're talking vocabulary aside, we're just going to throw ourselves in there. Um, yeah. why, why do you think this is the case?
1: I think, you know, on a very basic level, um, there can be very different rules for interpersonal communication in different contexts. And when, you know, when people from non-Western contexts go to the West, you're having to learn an entirely new set of rules for communication. And, it, you know, it can be as small as how do you interact with your supervisor? And, you know, hierarchy and experience and age, these are very important status markers in non-Western societies, at least, you know, in India. And so there's an expectation of treating your superiors with a lot more deference than you would in the West. Uh, And so, you know, these kinds of things are more challenging when you're coming into communities, which may be less aware of, you know, your own cultural background. And so this just requires you to see. You're not only moving to a new place without where you, you know, you don't have any social support systems, you also don't know the rules of engagement very often. So it just, you know, it's a lot more labor on the part of non-Western students and academics when they move to those spaces. And what I've noticed is that when academics from the West move to non-Western contexts, they bring their own cultural experiences and expectations with them. And you still see, at least at the subordinate level, students, you have to adjust your rules of behavior to suit your supervisor, for instance, or your superior faculty. even in the non-Western context.
0: Mm. Um, Amir, you were nodding your head. Would you like to add to that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, I think going back to um, the conversation on um, the way non-Westerners see their supervisors or their superiors, and that kind of those boundaries being very kind of solidified traditionally, and that when in the West we see a supervisor if there is that cultural context that's there, it's like this kind of like, almost like this giggle that happens. That isn't it funny that we're both aware of this dynamic yet, because we both come from another context, we're also aware of another one. Mm. And so this kind of creates that space where our familiarity, where there's more space for negotiation. Whereas if it's two kind of perspectives that come, uh, come together without there being any kind of zone of contact, there's, there's a lot of space for confusion, there's a lot of space for um, miscommunication mm, that occurs. Right. Whereas if there's this kind of, if one is familiar with those kind of cultural expectations, then it provides a lot of um, familiarity actually you know, and more mm-hmm. space for um, open communication.
0: Well, I think what's interesting about that as well is, you know, we talk about a non-Western to a Western context, but uh, this might surprise you, but Americans have a reputation of being quite blunt, and this doesn't <laughs> actually uh, translate well in some, uh, what should we say, very well-respected British contexts. and I can tell you from first-hand experience, one of the issues I had with my supervisor, and we can joke about it at the time, I was not joking about it, I was pretty mad uh, there was this um, kind of a vagueness in terms of communication. You know, I come from the East Coast. I come from Washington, D.C. It's like being a New Yorker in some respects. If you have an issue, I tell you there's an issue, and then we work on fixing it. But with some more sort of old-school approaches, it's uh, I will, in a roundabout, vague sort of way, tell you that there's a problem, but not actually tell you what the problem is. So to give you an example, my my supervisor at the time had said, um, I'd sent him a massive document, and he said, well... I have a few comments. And I went, okay, oh, it's just probably fine. And then I opened up the document, and it was bleeding red. And I said, what do you mean a few comments? But in his head, it was, you know, I don't want to make it sound terrible. I'm like, but now it is terrible. But well, look, this paper's been ripped to shreds. And we it took years to come to an agreement of how, how do I tell him I need to be, I need him to be honest with me. I'm not going to cry about it. But if you're not, but in his head, he thinks he's, um, easing his way into it and so even yeah. even within you think that there's similarities but the reality is there can be a lot more differences even Absolutely. if you are so to speak from from the West. Ali, I don't yeah. mean to cut you off, did you have anything you wanted to add?
3: Yeah um, since you mentioned your PhD supervisor and I believe Anna was talking about communication uh, I think uh, for me uh, my experience with my PhD supervisor was quite as i said unique in the sense that it was a team of four people we i had two supervisors and as i said that there weren't many uh, non european women before um, i started my phd in that department so it was a lot a lot, um, a lot of um, understanding each other's personal styles as well as the culture of the department and what we were working on uh, so i believe our identities uh, whichever background we came from, since two of my supervisors were uh, from Sweden and one was from Britain, and I was from Pakistan, and there was a lot of negotiation of understanding different things. Mm. But once that was done, and we created a, um, a personal code of uh, for, um, a code for for group uh, for people in a work group, uh, so it kind of worked. But Uh, There are obviously hierarchies between PhD students and uh, supervisors, they have more power, and I was a woman and there were three men. So there was a lot of negotiation, but once it was done, it wasn't our identities that were actually displayed like all the time. Mm -hmm. They were like different identities, not our ethnic identities, I mean so many different identities, PhD student, a newcomer to the department, uh, an established professor, uh, man, woman, so a lot, there were a lot of things, but all three of them had in common uh, their European background, and I was a brown woman, but um, it did work out well uh, in the end, but obviously there were miscommunications and communication breakdowns. Uh, but not all the time, just like if I would have done a PhD, let's say, in Turkey, in India, Bangladesh or wherever. Uh, so those kind of challenges I would have had to um, like um, face as well at, in, in those moments as well. Mm. Uh, so diversity to me, it doesn't actually just mean uh, being different ethnically. Uh you know what I mean? Like it's not sure. just our different nationalities or groups of people who are in academia, but it's being able to change the narrative of academic uh, life, academic ideas, uh, the theoretical perspectives. And so widening uh, those things, because we can all sit together and have good a good A cup of coffee, tea, enjoy the sambosas.
0: Or vodka. I mean, you know, take a pick. You know what I mean? Mm, Absolutely. It's not just that. It's
3: more than that.
0: Um, Manali, this kind of ties into something you had also mentioned, um, because you talked about how Western universities need to be more aware and sensitive to the different norms of behavior expected of international students and staff who find themselves adjusting to Western context. And I think, Alia, you make a, a really good point in that, yes, okay, there might be differences in terms of, you know, cultural differences or ethnic differences, whatever you want to call it, or just being a person, you're going to have differences. Right. Um, but there are yeah. ways in which yeah. you can negotiate that and in, in, in order to create more of a um, uh, a relatable atmosphere. So I was just wondering, Manali, and then, you know, feel free to jump in. Um, how how might this advice be useful for Western universities?
1: I think it's just, you know, just small changes, right? If we start being aware of the fact that people have different cultural experiences, and especially when you know that there are um, new people coming into your department, I think just small steps to create a more collegial and welcoming atmosphere, you know, organize more social events. I've been to so many departments where There's just not much of a community atmosphere. And as a new person, that can just be even more isolating. Mm. Um, I think just if people consciously made more of an effort to create a sense of community within the workspace as well and have more open conversations um, or attempts to negotiate these cultural differences, just acknowledging them, I think, would make
0: a huge difference. I think that's good. Um, I think... Um, I think I just you know, there's there's so much to unpack from that because again you know just trying to get academics socialized can sometimes be a challenge, but <laughs> I do think that um it's good for everybody dare I say to work on their people skills and I think that that is a very good way to go about it. In fact, uh, speaking of 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 people and sort of adjusting to new disciplines, Amir, I'm going to put you under the spotlight. Uh, because you stated earlier about some of the difficulties you faced. You grew up in London. Diversity was something you just sort of, you know, it's not it's not really open up for discussion. You come from here, you come from here. We're both from the same area. And, and that environment is so incredibly healthy. And then to go from that into, oddly, a very homogenous Caucasian environment— I would imagine, like anything, I noticed even for myself, surprise, surprise, growing up in Washington, D.C., it was quite diverse. And then I remember I I got to um, the U.K., and, and where I happened to be going was very um, <laughs> very white. And I, I did say to a friend jokingly, I said, you're right, we all look the same. And I think that that was something I hadn't really expected. And everyone was named John or Mary, and... I, I just it, it, it was an adjustment even for me. And I know I laugh about it, but it does go to show there seems to be a bit of a disparity there. And so I thought it was really interesting how when you started your degree, you felt this like it almost like wasn't for you. And I was wondering because you also talk about, you know, thanks to your tutor, you said that it was entirely possible to weave in a diasporic identity with a discipline that is founded upon liminality. Could you please tell us, kind of unpack that a bit more and tell us what you mean by that?
2: sure. As in, I'm, I'm sure anyone who's kind of diasporic has this kind of feeling where the parents always make you feel like home is actually somewhere else. Mm. Like this is kind of like an airport. You know, like, and so you're in that constant state of uncertainty.
0: Mm, um, that's interesting. Um,
2: and when I entered Anthropology and the discipline itself—it kind of felt like um, what my tutor managed to do was to kind of make me aware of the fact that as an anthropologist, you kind of have to find home in different places, and you have to be open and to adaptive things that you never thought were even possible, you know. Mm. And um, you know, when when he was kind of uh, when he was describing his own fieldwork, it's kind of one of those things where when you see someone else do something, it instantly becomes possible for you. you know? mm. And, um, uh, this kind of, yeah, I guess, um, uh, the adventurism, a lot of it was, um, you know, this idea of the white anthropologist, who's the explorer, who's going to go to this nice exotic culture and bring back all the kind of
0: and we will uh, get into that that, by the way we're not escaping (laughs) that just so you know we're bringing out Um, all the stuff
2: and um yeah it was just kind of like a different perspective that made me realize that actually anthropology doesn't does not necessarily have to be one thing it can be viewed from and interpreted in thousands of different ways you know And, uh, yeah, to use your favorite word, there's a milieu of
0: different interpretations. Oh, oh, I might hang (laughs) up with you. (laughs) This gives me the creeps. Um, um, So one of the things I'd like to unpack just a bit more, and um, Ali, I don't know if you've had this experience Manali, maybe you have, um, but because Amir and I are both anthropologists, one of the things that we talked about is this idea of dealing with... um, controversial concepts and one thing Mm -hmm. that we had talked about uh not to name names is that we had both attended quite liberal universities and uh one thing that amir had mentioned and again this is something i had noticed for for quite a while and sometimes you need to hear it from the other person to be like yes yes i'm glad i'm not the only one that thought this is that uh, this idea of of race in some liberal universities, there tends to, and I'm not saying it's, it's a blanket statement for everybody, but there seems to be an opinion that the concept is quote unquote covered. You know, we've already talked about it. It's like flogging a dead horse. We don't need to talk about this anymore. And the result mm-hmm. is one where there might be little to no room for alternative opinions, which could quite right. possibly result in a somewhat closed-minded atmosphere and now that i've put that out there um mm-hmm. i was wondering how um that might might be problematic uh, amir feel free to start and then you know you guys can join in,
2: sure, as mm-hmm. in particularly with a lot of sensitive concepts i felt like I oh yes it, it really doesn't could.
0: have to be this is just an example it could be sure, sure. all sorts of stuff
2: you know academia is really good at teaching how to perform that being progressive you know where praxis for race theory often is very exclusive for the classroom so in like a tutorial and someone, someone will acknowledge you know as a white male. Then and then and then, and then the performative aspect that's how one, one conducts oneself and when one writes in, in the academic literature. And those same people, you often find that when there's someone who provides an opinion outside of that zone of comfort, the performance kind of shakes up, and suddenly there's a bit of a silence. Like, oh, why did you why did you break this kind of nice, neat? Uh, you
0: broke the code, uh, this, the unspoken the code. You know, code. Uh,
2: the, the Tetris is okay. gone and then um, you know afterwards in private, like people should not and say, "Oh, it's very interesting," but in private, uh, they'll be like, "Oh my God, did you see that? Wasn't that awkward?" And this often forms a kind of exclusion, you know, of yeah. where so when someone points out a problem, they become the problem. Absolutely. Instead of like,
3: you
0: know. yeah. Alia, did you have anything uh, based off your experiences?
3: Uh, yeah, I was actually um, thinking about the inclusion and exclusion. Uh, it's not just the um, the not done in like just social settings, but it it's done in so many different ways. Um, like for instance, if you go to a conference, uh, which means that there are people from different backgrounds and a, a different uh, hierarchy of. Uh, their educational level and experience. So if there are like famous professors or people uh, who are well-known and um, uh, like in any field, right? Uh, there are people who are plenary speakers. You have, as a, as a person of color, you have less access to them. Uh, it might sound strange than the other people.
0: Hmm. Could you uh, explain that a bit more? That would be helpful. It, yeah, I mean, like in academia,
3: Uh, when we write our dissertations, our thesis, our articles, uh, journal articles. So once they are published, I believe it's not just um, uh, that how well a paper is, but how social you are, how connected you are with your network and your community that you get cited. Uh, And Mm. conferences are those places where you actually get to know people, right? Mm. And when they're all already uh, among cultural codes. Or European cultural groups where people are already connected. So, let's in a conference if there is a plenary speaker whom uh, whom uh, who has a very difficult name, but everybody is calling him uh, with his nickname. Uh, then, as a person of color, uh, reaching out to that person, it's it's a kind of um, not possible for you mm. uh, unless and until you have worked with that person. And uh, there are so many other social bonding features, like for instance, uh, I'm going to um, um, go a bit more controversial here. So That's let's okay. say uh, after, yeah, so after dinner, for instance, um, everybody's having wine or alcohol. And if you're not having a, a, a glass of wine, then you're excluded. Mm. Um, and those are the bonding times and researchers uh, form groups. Mm-hmm. like uh, so if let's say I published a paper in 2013 and another person uh, has published a paper at the same time then if he has a bigger social network and he's been going to he or she has been going to a conference and he's connected in those social moments where everybody's having a glass of wine uh, just as an example mm-hmm. it could be coffee as well but mm-hmm. more approachable to people who follow those norms. You see what I mean? Oh,
0: absolutely. And also, absolutely. Like,
3: yeah. And as far as controversial topics are concerned, so um, there's different uh, spaces, right? So within this big Caucasian white spaces at the universities, you have uh, meeting places, uh, less formal, so these are informal ones. And then you have classrooms, seminars, research seminars, where people are publishing. And as though it seems we are doing the um, 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 um very demo- uh, we are working very democratically but if you bring in a perspective which doesn't agree which doesn't really equip with the presenter or the general norms of um, of a place where you are presenting it's it's not really open people are really closed minded in certain uh, ways uh, i would say mm-hmm. so let's say people can quote i mean if you study english literature for instance uh, if you're reading Milton, Shakespeare, or anybody else, then you're reading half the Bible as well, right? You do uh, get to read uh, Christian scriptures. Yes, and yeah. it's not just done in the European context, but uh, all uh, Muslim countries where people are studying English literature, they're studying uh, the Christian scriptures as well, but as neutral, objective um, researchers. Uh, but when it comes to European contexts. Yeah? You can um, people would probably never quote, let's say, Quran or the other Muslim scriptures. And it's kind of policed in a way that you cannot give an example from uh, the um, Muslim context. And Muslim context Mm -hmm. is just one example because I'm a Muslim. uh, That's why I'm giving this example. But it's more um, like it's an implicit kind of policing uh, that's done. Obviously, one can quote and say, but I'm not just saying that a person of color should be able to say that, but other people as well should be able to quote. If I can um, uh, quote controversial uh, European researchers, then controversial uh, topics from the other background should also be normalized, in a way. The normalization of other ideas is quite far from what we see at the institutions of uh, higher education, and I believe that's kind of part of uh, the colonization uh, European colonization that happened in the former century.
0: Yeah, and, and could we stop you? Could we stop you there because I think you're getting on to a really good point. And I, w- I don't want to jump too much and I don't yeah. I don't because I know you've got okay. a lot of really important things to say. But you mentioned this word postcolonial okay. Mir, I'm going to turn to you mm. uh, because one of the things we had talked about, uh, I don't know if you remember from previous phone conversation, um, but getting back to um, some of the stuff that we have studied in the past, This sort of post-colonial mindset that sometimes creeps its way into some disciplines. Um, And I know within our field, there is this sort of idea of what um, real anthropology looks like in terms of the studying of, so to speak, I put quotes on it, little bunny ears, other cultures. And normally that seems to be sort of confined to Southeast Asia, Africa, South America, And through that, I wondered if this supposed othering of cultures, this idea of what's considered exotic by, you know, could be UK standards or what have you, um, if this gives off the impression that uh, Europeans uh, do not have culture. And I was wondering what kind of impact you think that might have in our field or even in our discipline. Sure.
2: As in, I think it was a wonderful example just now when you um, noted that the American experience and the European experience, like you coming over to in the imagination, the West mm. often has this kind of homogenous kind of binding. Whereas, you know, it's terrible because being part of human is that you produce culture. And that the problem with taking whiteness as not having culture is on the one hand, there's a dehumanizing aspect, but also those within academia, can also see that position as kind of like post-human, that they're you know that, that that they're kind of beyond this aspect of humanity. Now they kind of like act as butterfly collectors, where they take a bit from this culture, a bit from that culture. They bring it to the university, and we kind of analyze the uh, the wings. But I think that you know more and more. Um, what I would like to see, essentially, is a lot of. Uh, every culture studying every culture not necessarily also studying within their own culture kind of thing and then to kind of really blend this understanding of one studying the other and you always find familiarity and strangeness both within the self and outside of the self and to kind of like juxtapose those things for me is is where i would like the discipline to be not necessarily this kind of the homogeneity of knowledge being focused into one region of the whole of the world, essentially to kind of reverse the shifts.
0: Yeah. You know, culture is everywhere. I think is, I think is what you're, you're kind of getting at. And if Absolutely. I could sort of transition now into gender, because it's not really something we've had a chance to talk about yet. Uh, Manali, you had an interesting comment from one of your male colleagues Um, Again, we all know that in academia, job precarity is rife. Mm -hmm. It is what comes with the package if you choose to stay down this very rocky, bumpy path. Uh, One thing you had talked about, Manali, is you mentioned a concern that came from one of your white male colleagues when he expressed his fear at losing out on professional job opportunities because of the need for diversity in academia. As he put it, you'll be fine. You're a brown woman from the global South. Why do you think there is this pervasive fear amongst some white male academics?
1: Look, I think, you know, the, the reasonable response is that there are far fewer jobs out there than there are PhDs. Right. And so Absolutely. The, the job market is just not keeping up, um, with how many people want to be in academia. Um, but the other aspect of this is also, I think, um, that there is, you know, the mainstream discourse about gender and diversity can sometimes just become so toxic and exclusionary as well. Um, and so, a lot of the times, what people are just so hyper aware of their race and gender identities constantly in interactions with each other at the moment, that I think it just makes you doubt each other's, um, you know, right to be in places sometimes. And so, Am I in, you know, did I get a PhD or a postdoc opportunity because I I am just as good as a white male colleague and just as deserving? Or did I get it only because I'm a diversity hire, right? Are my ideas Mm. as valuable? Is my training just as good? Um, Are my skills just as good? Or am I getting these opportunities just because um, the university needs to look more diverse? So I think, you know, Because these issues are still, they're everywhere, but how we talk about them can be so sensitive and it's still taboo to disagree about these issues in a reasonable, um, discursive manner, that it creates more fears and um, reactionary sort of responses on people. Um, and There's no space to sort of acknowledge these and address these openly at the moment.
0: I don't know if you guys saw the Guardian article that came out um, earlier this week on the 28th, and it was written by an academic named Jonathan Wilson, and he talked about this pint of Guinness syndrome, where it seems like if you are, you know, ECR, early career researcher, junior faculty, PhD student, what have you, there's a bit of a mix there, but then the further up the pint glass you go, the more white it becomes. And he talked mm-hmm. about that sort of issue that can come up from um, what can be in many respects a sort of white male dominated environment. And Alia, I was just curious to know, seeing as you have worked in seven different universities, um, have you had any sort of similar experiences?
3: Um, when it comes to uh, gender or discrimination of different genders, I haven't like personally experienced um, but of course, as I said, uh, there is always there is always room for uh, uh, like finding your place with whatever uh, ethnicity, gender, or backgrounds you have. Uh, but I would like to add that in Sweden, for instance, your you a man and a woman gets a different salary. So that's like a starting point. Uh, that as a PhD student who is a male would get a different salary from me, a higher salary. So even though it's not uh, Sweden is a very uh, equal kind of a country here you would find uh, like so you don't actually get the same uh, appreciation uh, in terms of uh, finances when is
0: there a reason the that the S- the swedish government has decided that it's okay for for males to get a higher income salary than women is there a, a reasoning for it um
3: uh, I'm not actually sure, but there is this law that. Uh, so, if you Google it up as well, you'll find uh, the the standard average salaries for a female and a male at different universities always different.
0: Mm, okay. But from that
3: perspective, it is it's it's really um, discriminating. It is even though you do get very equal opportunities in Sweden. Uh, when it comes to doing several things like meetings, so we do choose equal amount of men and women. Um, I would say that it's less uh, discriminating if you compare it with other anglophone countries as well. Um, but there are there is obviously room for improvement in that respect. Interesting. Um, So I haven't actually experienced um, like discrimination in that respect, but more um, because in Sweden people are not that open. But you can find implicit way of uh, being judged or uh, implicit sort of um, reactions by people if a woman of color, for instance, um, as Amir and Manali have been talking about uh, differences of opinion and acceptance of other cultures. So. Uh, let's say in discussions, if uh, uh, like if it's anthropology or ethnography, and we are discussing different cultures, then I think still uh, people in the European context believe that uh, the European cultures are superior. Yeah. You know the poem by Rudyard uh, Kipling, for instance. Uh, I believe in 2020, the things have changed, but they have just changed mask of faces. Okay. And people can still question uh, the way uh, people get married in Asian or African countries or pe- how people dress up, even though, I mean, billions of people are doing that. So uh, we can't really... Uh,
0: well, if I could, we we're just really going to segue a little bit because you also tied into something really interesting, Alia, uh, in terms of um, this importance of uh, the idea of being trained in the West. And Manali, Amir... Don't worry, we haven't forgotten about you. Uh, you <laughs> talked about, again, with this hiring process, um, that you had You had said actually you haven't uh, experienced really any gender-based discrimination, but it, you have been affected as a result of your nationality. But you also claim that it's more to it than that, and that uh, the issues arose when you decided not to pursue your PhD in the West. And as a result, you stated that universities have questioned whether your qualifications are, quote-unquote, rigorous enough putting you in what you rightly feel is a precarious position when it comes to the job market. And I was wondering, um, have you noticed similar experiences amongst your colleagues as well?
1: Yeah, and you know, this is, I'm not sure any of us even thought about this um, when we, you know, decided to study outside the West. And the backgrounds are fairly diverse. It's not just Asians studying PhD, like, you know, in PhD program in Asia, but also a lot of um, Caucasians. We had Europeans, um, you know, in our PhD program, for instance. Um, But the ways in which this can hold you back is really, it started coming out for us um, only towards the very end of our program. And as we started going on the job market and, you know, On one level, my nationality as an Indian affects me every time I need to go to a conference or pursue um, an opportunity uh, outside India in the first form, which is visa applications, right? And so the cost of visas can be so prohibitive. I spent $300 um, just on visa costs to attend a conference in London last year, and all I got for $300 was a six-month visa, which, I mean, you know, you think about the cost of that as a graduate student, and that's prohibitive. And um, when you're located outside the West, it takes away your opportunities in terms of how many professionalization events you can even attend. How many conferences do you get to be a part of? And so, you know, I I see my European counterparts, and they're able to attend student graduate conferences and just so many workshops and professional conferences. And so the amount of training and experience and networking opportunities that you get because you're in the West is something that you just don't have on the same level in in the non-West because academia is just a much smaller industry outside the West. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that none of us really realize. The other thing that you know that came out much later is, you know, we looked at rankings, National University of Singapore is extremely well respected. You look at the faculty, they're all trained um, at the Ivy Leagues so or Oxford and Cambridge, you know, these countries, China, Singapore, they hire the best of the best um, internationally at the moment. And so you think, you know, you're gonna get a really good quality education. And that's true because they're very good at training us in the Western canon but when you go on the job market from outside the west and you're competing for opportunities in the west it holds you back because people still wonder is your training rigorous enough mm. right do you do you really know enough to be able to teach a class of undergraduates and so these kinds of questions and it's also awkward for the other side to even ask you these questions in an interview mm. Yeah. These are things that, you know, none of us realize. And then another thing, the way my nationality holds me back, for instance, is, and I realized this very recently, that when you apply for employee visas, like job visas in countries, very often there is a minimum threshold of salary that you have to meet.
0: And what salary? What are you talking about? You got a salary? So if you want (laughs) to...
1: Well, there you go. So I can't even be free labor <laughs> because you don't get visas if you're if you're not making a minimum amount of money and postdoc salaries are often far lower than that. And so you don't even really get to compete for a lot of opportunities that you're very well qualified for. Mm.
0: Well, if I could, uh, we're going to have to wrap this up quite soon. Amir, did you have any comments you'd like to make?
2: Um. I guess what's exciting is this platform, really. The fact that we're kind of talking about diversity in this, uh, in this kind of way, where, um, for example, even for me, I had never even considered the fact that it might be so much more difficult for someone who's coming from outside of a Western university to compete within a job market within, and how that gaze kind of looks in. So, the very fact that this kind of conversation is happening it kind of expands awareness of even to the listeners about mm-hmm. things that they weren't aware of. And I guess that is the point, the diversity of perspective and experience I mm-hmm. think um, is to more platforms like this,
0: actually. Sure. Um, and Alia, did you have anything you'd like to say? No, I would
3: uh, just like to say that uh, we should have more of these opportunities, these spaces where we can discuss more openly uh, uh, without fear. Uh, so thank you for organizing this, maybe we should have continuation of dialogues of specific kind of uh, challenges of people from diverse backgrounds uh, mm. have in the higher educational institutions.
0: Mm. Thank you again. Sure. Well, I think what I'm going to do is rather than ask this question to all three of you, I think what I'm going to do is just ask it to the world as sort of a wrap-up <laughs> here because Manali, you had said that there was a question that sort of came to you um, and and you put to me, you said, how much does academia Actually, value diversity. You said while departments are aware they need to have more diverse faculty, academic institutions still want individuals who have been trained in the West. So, I think what we need to do, as you had mentioned, is we need to ask ourselves what sort of message are we sending specifically to academics from abroad and possibly even to future students who are thinking about doing, um, dare I say, higher education outside of just a master's degree. Uh, and with that, I would say that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Dr. Ali Amir, Dr. Manali Kumar, and Amir Masumian for joining us at the studio this afternoon. For those of you who've enjoyed the show, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast as well as explore our Facebook page and blog. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter where you can learn more about upcoming episodes. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.